This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. I am coming off a fantastic lunch from the Steinenvine where I had a chicken parmarito. These people brought me a burrito stuffed with chicken parmesan that was the size of a regulation football. Absolutely <laughs> insane. And you, you guys can't see this, Whatever, but the guys man. on the Zoom can. My rep from Paylocity got the big fish sandwich, and I have never seen a fish sandwich that was that big. God. Okay, let, let me let's just talk about this for a second. I, I have a couple <laughs> things I need to get off my chest. Number one, total <laughs> bullshit. Every time I am in Valrico, we never go. And every time I am not in Valrico, you always go. So that's the first thing. I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there. I intentionally didn't invite you because I knew you were just coming back from being on a long weekend. <laughs> I'm going to take that to my capacity guy and tell him he's, he's slacking here a little bit. Yeah. So second thing is one of my biggest pet peeves is when the sandwich is far bigger than the bun. I need it to be proportional. <laughs> I hate when my meats and toppings are hanging way over the bun. That's just ridiculous. It's not a sandwich. I told him this legitimately, this guy could have trimmed around the bun. Yeah. And eaten just what fell off and would have been more than full. <laughs> I bet it's crazy. Hey, come on, man. So listen, we're with Rob Schmidt. Rob's part of Keystone Insurers Group, and and I may even be saying that wrong, just because there's so many different silos in Keystone, I can't keep them straight um, from the outside. But I didn't even, I don't even remember what state you're from, Rob. So why don't you, why don't you do my job for me and give us the grand introduction and sort of a little ten thousand foot overview of of how you got to where you're at today, and then we'll we'll start getting after it. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Yes, yeah, so uh, I'm I'm part of Keystone Insurance Group. We are the Celtic Group Partners. Uh, we're a member of Keystone Agency Partners as well. We're based out of Pennsylvania uh, right now. We have 12 locations in Pennsylvania, basically central PA to the eastern side of Pennsylvania. Um, we've grown substantially in the past couple of years, it's a lot of organic growth and, and acquisition growth. So um, I've been with the Celtic Group now for just shy of three years. 
where um, one of my original mentors when I first got in the industry was a part owner here. And so that's kind of how I got attracted to this organization. Good deal. So what were you doing before you got into the insurance industry? Well, I right out of college, I went to work for an insurance carrier on the claim side. And they had a training program back then, you know, 20 years ago when carriers had training programs, uh, which have gone to the wayside. But I did that. And then I worked for a family-owned firm for a while, uh, made a couple of changes. And then um, I was working for a small firm. And um, really, the equity opportunity was kind of appetizing to me and, and was really put on my plate. So that's kind of what made me uh, jump to this great organization. Cool. So talk to me about like specialties and things like that. You guys have a lot. It sounds like you've got a good presence in the eastern half of PA. Are you specializing in any particular vertical markets? Our, our guys, we, we try to have every one of our producers have a niche because obviously it gives them a little bit of an edge. Um, we have producers with niches in uh, municipalities, uh, school districts. We do uh, car dealerships. Uh, we have a lot of captive business for that larger business that wants to get some, you know, some of their premiums back if they're profitable. So, I mean, it really, it's wide spectrum. How did uh, being on the carrier side of things, especially being on the carrier side of things first and like right mm-hmm. out of college and not really knowing anything about anything, how do you feel like that impacted you? What kind of oh, things no, I, did I you knew, learn? Or I knew something huh? about something when I got out of college after eight mm. years, but I, I still yeah. don't know anything. You know, it's a, the interesting part about it is it, you, your eyes open because, you know, we're both in the insurance industry, the carrier and the agency, but it's a different operation, right? So, you know, you know, the agency side, we're building relationships. You're trying to get the customers in the door. The carrier side, the good carriers build those relationships with their agents as well. Um, but I'm, I was real green, you know, just learning about insurance industry and claims, how claims handle or how claims impact people. I remember one experience where we had a lot of workers' comp claims because that's what I was handling at the time. So I went across the hall. One side of the building was underwriting, the other side of the building was claims. Walked over the hall to the, to the underwriter and I was like, hey, listen, you know, just so you know, we're seeing all these types of claims happening all the time. And the underwriter looked at me like, why are you telling me this? You know, so it's kind of a little <laughs> at, at that stage. I was kind of surprised. Like, I, I thought maybe you would want to know that as you're trying to underwrite the account going forward or try to maybe make some recommendations to prevent these claims going forward. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, that was 20 years ago, 20 years ago-ish. So what was the craziest I, you know, claim you saw? I was, uh, it was a stressful time. I had a fatality. Uh, mm. I had a fatality that I actually uh, declined the claim. And I, the reason why I declined the claim wasn't because we wanted to, it was because uh, the gentleman wasn't in the course and scope of his employment. So I'll give you a try to make this abbreviated as possible. So no, man, give was, us the good, give us yeah, the gory details. So this was in the state of Delaware and the employee had a company truck, right? So, so his, the project manager was calling him and saying, Hey, listen, you need to be at ABC location on Wednesday. He doesn't show up Wednesday, call him again. The employee doesn't answer his phone for three days, doesn't show up. Then all of a sudden on Monday morning, uh, gets into a car accident and, and dies. And then they wanted his fiance said, well, he was, he was going to work. And, and first of all, how would he have known where to go? Cause he didn't respond to his manager was supposed to be going to a different location. So wherever this guy was driving to in his company vehicle didn't mean that he was actually just working or going to a proper job site. So, and the fact that he hadn't spoken to anybody within his company for, you know, over three to four days, it was, we weren't going to say, well, we're just guaranteed this guy was going to a job site. He didn't even know where he was supposed to be going to. So, you know, by definition, we felt that he wasn't in the course of scope of his employment because if so, there would have been some communication between him. Any job that I didn't answer or show up to for three or four days was no yeah. longer my job. 
There you go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I, de- I declined that claim. And then eventually the, uh, um, the, the courts actually overturned it and covered some of it. Huh. And that was after I, I had left because I was after my stint was over there, but interesting to see how it happens. Yeah. We had a couple that are similar to that. We had one that happened to one of, uh, one of Kyle's clients before they were our client. It, um, it was in South Carolina. They were working. They were, I don't even actually, I don't remember the exact, they were on a border, right? South Carolina and Georgia were both in play, but the employees were from California. So (laughs) we had flown, they had flown these employees over to build the, build the job that they were there to the construction site. They got rained out for the day. They drove from the site and stopped at a grocery some, store grocery something. store to get something to eat or whatever. And they pulled out of the grocery store and got into an accident. Two of them died and they killed somebody in the other car. Wow. Um, and it was an absolute rat's nest, right? Yeah. Because number one, What's their, what are the courts saying about the going and coming of, of yeah. workers? Number one, number two, you have employees who are domiciled in California sure. and they can now pick where they want the claim to be, how they want the claim to be adjusted based on law. Right. And I, you know, I don't know, I'd be interested and I don't mean to put you on the spot with this and certainly, you know, I'm sure it's, it's debatable. However, anybody were to answer this, but the way that the claims people, from the carrier described it to me was that if they would have gone directly back to the hotel where they were staying, showered, changed clothes, and then left to go to dinner, mm-hmm. that the claim would have not been covered because as workers right. comp. Because, because they, they their, their day was over at that point because they, they, they went was back to where point. they were staying. Yeah. But because they stopped on the way to the hotel, that's why. Yeah. I think a good that's attorney ex- would have had it covered either way, to be honest with you. But, you know, right. I'm sure it would have gone to court um, any way yeah. you slice it. it. It's always crazy to see that. There's another one that I had just recently where one of my HVAC accounts had been using a guy as a 1099. Of course, I didn't know this, um, sure. but they were using a guy as a 1099 and they said, we will hire you as a W-2 employee. You've done, you've done your time as a sub. Come on in. We'll, we'll give you a regular job. Be at the office Monday morning at such and such time to sign your paperwork. And uh, we'll get everything in the works. On his way to the office Monday morning, he's riding a motorcycle. He gets uh, T-boned and has basically been in a vegetative state for the majority of the time since. The carrier covered the claim. Uh, even though he was a sub because our client directed his actions and he was on his way to fill out official paperwork. And it was like a four it, last time I looked, it was like a four or $500,000 claim. I quit looking. Cause every time I do, I get sicker and sicker to my stomach about it. Uh-huh. But how would they just curious on that one? I mean, if the, the poor gentleman was in vegetative state, how would have they gotten all those details? Did, did he convey that to like a family member or cause like, I mean, I'm assuming he didn't record anything. No, they interviewed my client. Okay, your client disclosed that. Gotcha. That was generous of them to do that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it was out of generosity as much as out of 
Honesty. Honesty. Yeah. But yeah. you know, it's kind of the thing. Yeah. Mm. So let me ask you this, because this has always been something that I kind of wished that for me, I've always felt like you would have a leg up at the point of sale, specifically on workers comp, if you had claims adjusting experience, because it allows you to have a different perspective on things than people who aren't involved in that process. And, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big believer uh, in the fact we need to take our time to educate our clients and explain all of these things. And just having that library of knowledge, even though, you know, it was early in your career way back when, has that helped you be able to write deals you might not otherwise have been able to? You know, that's a great, great question and point. I, I think it has. And I take to go back a little bit further. I mean, in college, I, I went to college to be a high school history teacher and I, I didn't do a day of it. So um, I think in some capacity, I always like to educate my customers. So when I'm going into details, I want them to know how how the pizza pie is made. It's like, okay, this goes into it. This goes into it. And it, it's amazing that nine times out of 10, they look at you like they've never been told this and they've been in business for decades. You know, you go in and you just explain it to them. Uh, it's helpful. But uh, yeah, talking about claims, handling things to prevent, how keep, how much prevention, how valuable prevention is um, without a doubt. But I, I think it's the educational piece, you know, be, you know, getting in the door, what's in the door is great. You have the opportunity to really show your value. Um, but the educational piece is a key component of it. Yeah. So talk about, talk a little bit about the agency. I mean, what's your style up there? Are you guys traditional or you mix? I mean, how much personal versus commercial do you do benefits? Yeah. Great question. So we are probably about 60% commercial, probably 30% personal and 10% benefits right now. Uh, the benefits 10% is uh, we just bought one agency in G January one and just acquired another one, eight one. So uh, we're growing our benefits and we're effectively putting together a, cross sale plan for our, our large commercial book. Um, so that's going to be a, a rapid growth area for us. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we utilize East coast risk management as one of our partner organizations. You've probably heard of them before. Uh, we know that risk management is a key. I think that that's a word that's sort of being overused sometimes. It's, anymore a, it's a buzzword, just like culture is right. I mean, people throw go. it around, but do they really even mean what they're saying or do they know what they're talking about? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we, we actually have a, our, our, our organizations are kind of intertwined with the East Coast people. They come in and be part of our sales meetings on a, on a weekly basis where we just talk about opportunities and ways to introduce uh, their reps. It, just, it gives us the ability to make, you know, protect our customers even more, which is going to help their overall insurance cost. But um, you know, as a company, we, we feel like the East Coast risk, risk management relationship is one differentiator. We like to, um, the fact that we have the benefits, personal, commercial, um, we like to brand the Seltzer One brand. We know that if you want to do business with us, we can take care of almost every insurance need for you. So we do uh, we're starting to utilize that phraseology more often than not. But I think one of the biggest successes we've had this year, I think the numbers, I'm just off, but we're, we're at about 40 broker record letters this year already. And I'm talking sizable accounts. You know, we're going out there and we're building a relationship, getting in the door on accounts. So we're finding that our competition's just slapping a policy together, making a sale and just sending stuff out. And it's, the major problems that we're covering when we do the contract review is astounding. You know, I have a, a large firm that bought a policy. It's a cyber and professional liability policy. Well, on page 13, there was an absolute cyber exclusion, excluding all of It's kind of important on a cyber policy. We, yeah. It, I mean, it's labeled cyber and professional and page 13, absolute exclusion. I just take the page out. I slide across the table. See if I said, maybe I'm missing something, but I, how I'm reading this is you have no cyber coverage. And they were irate because 
they crossed, they sold, sold this policy telling them that they were going to have, you know, cyber as part of the professional policy. So, yeah, and, and these are what have appeared to be reputable competitors that are doing this. So it's, um, uh, we've had a, a proud year so far. It's uh, it's like selling the old general liability with the bodily injury exclusion. I mean, seriously, <laughs> right. it's, it's yeah. that ludicrous. Right. Yeah, you right. know, it's interesting, man, because I think that a lot of times we have um, we have people that we we see out in the marketplace that we're competing against. They're well-known names, you know, some in, in some cases publicly traded. And we automatically put value on that as competitors. And I'm sure that clients and prospects do the same. You know, just because the name's on the outside of the building doesn't mean that the inside of the building reflects that. You know what I mean? And yeah, a lot of point. these companies, especially at this point, with is with the way that people are growing through acquisition, it's it's tough, man. I mean, you're part of Keystone Agency Partners. You you've mentioned I know how that deal works. David Bodker and I talked yep. about it in great detail when I was in Vegas and he was putting the hard clothes on me to sell my agency to him. But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we, we were talking about that. And I think that the way that they do it is the right way to do it because you have the infrastructure in place and it's not, you're not growing at such a pace where it becomes unmanageable. I right. just think that some of these firms are buying people to buy the revenue stream and they'll figure it out later. And that's an expensive proposition down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. You know, and one of the things too, that I don't know, I mean, you know, you've got uh, systems integration and, you know, people on different management systems and integrating all that, and, you know, um, make sure you have the right software and hardware in place when we've had supply chain issues. I mean, these are some of the challenges that we explored this year. I, I can't imagine that some of these other organizations even care about that. They just, like I said, they, they buy the assets and say, well, we'll see how long we can keep them. That's you know? in interesting. I mean, I wonder how much attrition happens there. I mean, you've got to think that it's, that it's less huge. Than, less than in, but the, here's the thing, man. When you started bringing in institutional money from outside the industry, they're, they're comparing it to the success rate of seed stage software companies and med device companies and things like that that have a much higher failure rate than buying yeah. an established book of business. They they feel like they True. like their chances because there's already an established history there and they they feel like they you know it's going to be difficult even if for if it's only for a year or two uh that they hold on to that stuff they're banking on the fact that they're going to be able to replace that revenue. Huh. I'm not I'm not agreeing with them. I'm just yeah. saying it's a much I mean, less risky sense. investment than yeah. it is for them to do a lot of other things they have invested in in the past. Sure. Yeah. But I, think I, I would just that figure I, that like in that situation, I guess in my head, I'm just thinking of like, if, okay, conservatively, if like 20% of the book turns on a yearly basis as is, and then somebody else comes in, who's just not really doing the things that those insureds were accustomed to, um, that it would be much higher than that. But I mean, what you're saying totally, totally makes sense. We've been, I obviously believe in the KAP platform. We've been a you know, part of that. And I would say we're a success story. You know, that's, that's not done well. We had, we've had seven acquisitions in the past uh, 14 months. And um, I had a sales meeting on Tuesday with a couple of the business owners, producers, and, and just wanted to get their perspective on what maybe three differentiators are about our organization now. What's their perception, each individual. And the, it was amazing. They were just talking about how, the carrier relationships we have, the cloud we have with our, you know, underwriters to get jobs done to, you know, you might have an account that's on the fence of qualifying for a company, you know, just they, they felt the accounts that would have got denied or declined years before. Now they're getting accepted. So, um, 
you know, smaller agencies, you know, maybe half a million dollar, million dollar agencies that don't have as many courses as we do uh, really like this model. And we're, we're trying, we're not trying to change people's brands. We don't want to create any friction for those customers. We want to keep it there and just say, Hey, this is, this is what sales can bring to the table for you all to do more, take some of the back office stuff out of the way for you. So um, it's been extremely successful for us. I don't want to put you in a position where you violate any kind of um, non-disclosure agreements or anything like that. And I don't want to scare you by putting that disclaimer on the question either, but I mean, I, I am interested because I do think that the, the, the people who listen to the podcast that aren't as familiar with Keystone and specifically Keystone agency partners in terms of how it works, um, I think it would be good for maybe you to talk a little bit about that. Like, what does that acquisition process look like? I know what David has shared with me because sure. that was one of the things he was really wanting to leverage is the fact that I have a lot of connections so that if he could get me into the mix and, you know, we could start making acquisitions and things that would work. It, it's just not the right time for me at this point, but sure. um I'm interested in, in, you know, maybe as much as you're willing or able to share about that um, sure. without violating anything. Sure. Uh, what, what I'll say is uh, Keystone Agency Partners, uh, I, I like the partnership word of it because it really is a partnership. It's not, well, every every agency that goes and becomes part of KP, their situation can all be, be set different. They're not all identical, I guess the best way to put it, where there could be a full KP can come in and say, all right, we're going to buy you out 100%. If that's what you want, great. Uh, our situation was not like that. It's a partnership where there's percentage ownership that was you know, purchased, but we still maintain ownership in it and, and run the organization. So um, the, you know, the idea is it's the, um, the funding platform, right? So if you want to grow, you know, where do you come up with the money to perpetuate your, your succession planning within your organization, all while trying to invest in other agencies to grow uh, through acquisition. So it's a great model. Um, it, it's been working very well for us. And, um, you know, again, it's, there's a thousand, a thousand moving parts, right? So and we've been in this for a year and a half, almost two years now. Um, everything's gone well. Um, you know, but again, I, I think the biggest thing that we've learned this year is, okay, make sure we have integration. Make sure integration doesn't fall flat on space. You know, we obviously had COVID, so we had some supply chain issues trying to get literally the hardware to have some of our new agencies, you know, rolled into our, our system the right way so that we can have common accounting, for, you know, stuff across the board. So interesting. We, we learned a lot, but it's, it, it hasn't um, hasn't been a roadblock for us, though. So I've got to believe, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I mean, having Keystone Agency partners going through this process with you, I mean, you get not just the in, intellectual capital and the experience, but I mean, they've got the infrastructure to help with the due diligence process yes. and all of that stuff, including valuation and everything I would imagine. So that's gotta be a huge bonus and make it a lot easier for you to go out and make these acquisitions without having to figure out how to navigate those waters on your own. Absolutely. They have a fantastic team. They keep growing the team with, with quality people. Um, they're guys like, you know, we could sit down and have a beer, like we're having a conversation now. So it's, Relationships good. They're always accessible. Um, you know, our job is obviously to share our information with them. You know, collaborate on things. And and part of our our job on this level is really making sure that that agency is comfortable, knowing this is our family. You're going to get brought into it. Will you guys will the culture cliche will the cultures you know mesh properly after this transaction happens? And that's really where we do on on every level. We want to make sure from an owner's standpoint to you know the office manager that they're comfortable with who we are and how we operate. So. Um, 
but yes, the KP easier said than done, obviously. Right. I mean, that's, that's gotta be a pretty tricky aspect of all this. It is, it it is. And, you know, um, I would say we walked away from, uh, we walked away from probably two deals where, you know, maybe the beginning we're kind of going through this and then, you know, at, as I was talking with my partners, we're like, I don't know, something just doesn't feel right in this one, you know, and, and it ended up being good. We walked away from it because of a couple of different variables, but yeah, it doesn't always work out. I got to believe the culture integration is really delicate too. You know, I mean, you probably pick up on enough to know whether or not an agency is going to be a good fit, just eyeballing it. But once you start, you know, I look at it this way. I grew up in a very conservative home, right? So it was never a situation where you were going to live with the person you were going to marry before you got married. So you didn't know what it was like to live with them. You could date them. You could learn everything you wanted to learn about them. But, you know, until you actually get married and move into the house, you don't understand what you're really in the middle of, right? Sure. And sometimes that works great. And sometimes it doesn't work so good, but I think yeah. that going through the acquisition process, especially, especially with an independent insurance agency, an entity that is so closely held by the ownership that basically built it on their own back and then started bringing team members in who started carrying some of the load with them along mm-hmm. the way, man, culture is either probably really, really defined or really, really not. And I don't know which one's more difficult to integrate. Yeah, that's a great point. I would say uh, to the, the culture piece, I mean, we, I would say two years ago, have you heard of CultureWise? It's a platform. I have. Uh, and we, we utilize CultureWise and we came up with some fundamentals. So like when we're talking to people, you know, we talk about what we do and, and, and this is what our organization is built upon. And I think a lot of times that that attracts the other agencies saying, okay, you know, these, this company's gone through this exercise of establishing what they believe in or what they want to do every day. So I, I think at least knowing that we've done that shows them a little bit of comfort level that we're just not randomly telling you what we think our culture is. You know, we've gone through this exercise and established the fundamentals and things of that nature. So I think that helps. I think the question yeah. on everyone's mind is, do you guys <laughs> have your own seltzer? Number one. <laughs> and number, number two, what Seltzer, flavors? seltzer. Yeah. We, we made our own for uh, for a charity golf outing. We had a tent that we had our, we kind of made our own little spruce of it. We should, maybe we should label it and diversify can, our industry here. <laughs> can that piece up. Yeah, Start right. mass production. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's hilarious. So you, you have multiple offices generally in the same geographic area. How do you manage that? Like, how often do you get everybody together to where you can have them all kind of the same page? I would think that if I was in that role, that would probably need to happen quarterly for me. I think I would try and get everybody together at least once a quarter just to make sure yeah. they understood we're all on the same team. And, you know, sure. people like to be around other people. We learned that during COVID. Absolutely agree. I mean, we, we do have, a, we, we schedule a quarterly plan. I mean, and uh, let's see what it was. So just in August, we did, uh, like we did our, our uh, summer picnic. So we had all, all the offices came together for a summer picnic. We closed the office for the day and there was a swimming pool at the local community center, which was, was great because, you know, if you make an acquisition seven, one people, you know, have a month of not knowing who, whose faces to go to what names, but yeah, we do do a quarterly. We're going to do a sales strategy event in, in November. We always do a Christmas party. But we do do, 
we do on a weekly basis, we do do team Zooms or whatever, you know, sales teams on a meeting. We actually have our main office will have at least 50 to 75% of our people in person. And those people who might be on the ancillary parts, they'll remote, remote in and can see everybody there. And we do that from a service perspective as well. So we want to try the best that we can is to be in front of these people, the exposure to them so that they're not feeling like they're on an island. Um, but to your point, I think it's always going to be a work in progress as we grow that these things will need to change and we need to adapt a little bit. Um, but we, as leaders, I, have a plan to be in person. And even if it's just doing an office day in an ancillary office, go sit down so that everybody's there and then they know they can come talk to you. So we need to do a little bit of a better job on that. Um, but we have identified that's something that we want to do more of. Yeah. I just think, that, I mean, it, it, it becomes difficult, man. It's, it's, it, it's a, it's a disruption to business and I don't want that to sound negative, but it is what it is. Right. I mean, Sure. You have to place value on it. And then the other thing that you run into is people aren't always wild about doing things after hours either. You know, it's like, I've been with you all day. Yeah, now, we, you know, I'm good friends with the guys over at urban young in Orlando. And those guys are completely different animals when it comes to culture. I honestly believe they would have one giant log cabin and have everybody live in it together. If they could <laughs> at their agency, because they'll go to work on hang out all day. Then they'll hang out at happy hour for a while. Then they end up at somebody's house in the evenings. And it's not, it, it's I, not just them. It's their spouses and everybody's really? bought into it. And it's really cool kind of to <laughs> see it, but it's also kind of weird, you know, because yeah. I don't know, you know, as much as I like Kyle, I, you know, I don't want to be around Kyle 24 hours a day. I don't want to be around anybody no. 24 hours a day. Sure. No. I, um, so it, it, it's funny. Um, uh, one, one of my buddies who David, you and I have talked about like my, my buddy that's down in South Florida, he's working for a job right now. And every Wednesday they have a, they have a call. They say he'll work from eight to five. And then they'll have a, they'll have a call from like six to 9 PM on Wednesdays. And it's just like, what? Yeah. And, and, and it's just kind of like a, it's the, it's the CEO on there and he's just kind of just talking the whole time. And it's like <laughs> how much he hates it. He tells me about it. And it's, so we, we worked for a company before where we were selling office supplies. Um, and it was like, we got to the office at like seven in the morning and did like our morning meetings and stuff. And then from whatever, eight thirty or nine, in the morning, we were out in the field selling, you know, till five thirty, six o'clock. And then we get back to the office and we'd wrap up. And so by that time it's seven o'clock again, we go home and I, I lived with, um, the manager. He was, you know, one of my good friends and, and that was all cool and everything. But on Tuesday night, we would do like a, like, like a, um, like a team, like, like just me and my team would go out and have drinks or dinner or whatever. And then on Wednesday night, it was the whole office. And it just, it just got to the point where it was like, dude, I'm like, <laughs> I get to the office at seven in the morning. I leave at seven at night. And then we go out and it's like, I'm tired you fuckers. I just yeah. want to go home and, <laughs> and hang out by myself and get a little bit. Sure. Of, so it, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's tough to definitely tough to balance that with, with people who are like, look, I just want a break. So it's, sure. I mean, but I think that I, that happens in every industry, right? It's not just what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, who wants to who wants to have a CEO of your company sit there and just spout I mean, stuff for three hours? It's like, look, hey, okay, guy. Or yeah, gal, it's like, bro, stuff, you know, like we we get it. You're the CEO. If you're, and you if you're smart talk enough to be and, CEO, you should be smart enough to know to stop talking and start listening a little bit more. You know, true. 
Very true. So let me ask you this. When you bring a new agency in that you've acquired, I mean, understanding you have the the tool that you use for culture, but what's the what's the first step usually look like for how you integrate them into the, the Seltzer way of doing business? Well, we do a team meet and greet. So the whole management team will, will go to the new location, you know, obviously just get to know everybody as much as possible. And then, you know, we put together a calendar uh, for the first, you know, first month of just, getting our people in there to do training on systems, make sure we get them the right, everyone has the same workstation information, get all that stuff orders that they're, you know, working. And then, uh, and then just, again, there's like usually like a, like a 30 minute check-in on a day-to-day basis. Like if they've got any questions on anything. So again, we don't want to disrupt. They're already selling insurance, managing servicing insurance. It's not changing what they do. It's just, we're kind of getting them on our platform and trying to make things easier for them. So there isn't a huge learning curve except for if their systems were different so we have a full team that's really really good at our at our management system so we usually put them they're part of the training team um i don't have more of a definitive answer to that other than what i just said though no the fact that you have an intentionality behind doing something puts you ahead of a lot of others i mean yeah that, that that's that's the fact it's just it's always interesting to me um because i think that I think for a lot of agencies, it's probably difficult to hire one person from the outside and integrate them into the culture, Right. let alone, yeah. you know, getting an entire agency and figuring out how to navigate that is a completely different animal. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we've just been fortunate and a little lucky along the way that the agencies we're acquiring are, are, are seeing maybe our way of doing things and seeing it in a light that it's much better, easier, better environment or, they like what we have to bring to the table. I think it makes their lives a little bit better in some way. Um, so I mean, we've been again successful and a little lucky with the ones that we've acquired so far, at least from the feedback that I'm hearing, of course, could be different. What's something that you learned along the way through all this process? Maybe, maybe something you thought that you guys had figured out and that you knew going in and realized as you're going through it, hey, maybe this needs maybe we need to call an audible on this or maybe it's not really sure. exactly what we thought great question um i could probably answer that question a couple of different ways but where i'll go is you know my my role uh, i'm a salesperson i manage all of our salespeople within all of our organizations and so uh let's take for example uh, our company will always be will always have a 10 percent organic growth goal right so when you acquire a couple agencies you know your overall volume or your value for your company goes up well if you acquire an agency that could have been a $750,000 agency or million dollar agency that have just, they built it over the years, but they may not have those, you know, horses that are out there crushing it, selling a lot, you know, you got to come up with a hundred thousand dollars of revenue from that shop. So as we look at our growth goals, you know, we'll get say, okay, well, here's where we are. Do I have enough bodies in place to achieve that 10% organic growth? growth? So, you know, I didn't really think about that piece of it. The acquisitions are great. The people are great they just may not be selling at the same level of what we as an organization want to achieve with that 10%. So, so it's made a little creative. Okay. What do we have here? Who's got a strength here? Who might have a little weakness? Maybe team some people up um, rather than, rather than just going out and hiring more salespeople to get to that number. So I, that's one thing that kind of uncovered because I've been tasked with what are, what's our goals this year? What's our goals next year? Where are we at? And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, that number keeps growing as we grow but do you have enough people to backfill that revenue? True. So here's my question. I'm interested in 
let's say that I'm an agency principal and I've been kicking the can a little bit thinking maybe mm-hmm. I want to get involved with Keystone. Maybe I don't. Right. You've ob- you're obviously a raving fan. You've established that thus far. What would you tell the person who's sitting on the fence that can't make up their mind? Now, are you saying Keystone Insurance Group or KAP? Which which one? Well, let's answer it for both. Okay. Go with Keystone Insurance Group first, and then we can go to Keystone Agency Partners second. Sure. Um, Keystone Insurance Group obviously has done everything by by putting all the different types of programs in place. Where you know they might. You know, whether it's a busing program, transporting program, a wheels train type of transportation, they've gone out of the way to find all those niche programs that you probably didn't have access to. So just by becoming a member, it gives you the ability to write more business with the customers or relationships you have that you may have not been able to do previously. Um, and obviously it's a you know the massive amount of numbers and, and other um, agencies, as you mentioned earlier, the intellectual capital by building relationships. I've been building a relationship with a couple of guys out of Kansas and Texas and we'll text all the time. He's like, Hey, what do you do for something like this? He's like, I've gone to these carriers and I'm like, well, I've tried these two companies. And he's like, I didn't think about that. So just that, you know, sharing of information outside of your shop is amazing. It's, it's such a great feeling. So I would say that's for sure on the Keystone insurance group side on the Keystone agency partner side. I mean, I think this is a, this is a growth and succession plan aspect of it. You're maintaining your identity. No one's taking away who you are and rolling you up into some other big monster of an organization. You still maintain the operation. You just don't run the show. They're just helping you with the capital backside of it to, you know, either help pay off any debt. So you have the ability to perpetuate ownership within your current structure and then help, you know, help fund acquisitions of others. Um, and then, you know, they're also there for help with, with efficiencies, right? So, Hey, if we're, I'll give you an example. It's let's just say our wholesale books, you know, you might have wholesale with, five different wholesalers. Well, why don't we negotiate? Let's see what this, what's the total book. And can we go to one or two of our carriers and say, all right, well, if we bring you X amount of volume, can we get, you know, an, a point or two more of, of compensation because we're going to give you, we'll, we'll make, do a book roll. So those types of things are valuable as well. Yeah. And I think I'm going to, I'm going to dance around this. Um, but I think for people to understand what Keystone Agency Partners does is essentially they're participating in acquisitions with you in a pro rata basis based on your ownership and your own entity. And I'm not going to share percentages that have been shared with me, but I think it's, I think it's important for people listening to understand when you hear about, you know, how many acquisitions have happened for Seltzer, you know, it seems like there's no way, right? There is a way there's a, Mm -hmm. it's proven to work. And the fact is, that is the agency who's leading this process with Keystone Agency Partners, you're not fronting all the money for the acquisition. And in fact, you're not even fronting the majority of the money for the acquisition, as I understand it. You're participating in the same rate that you own your agency with Keystone. And so that makes it much easier for you to make acquisitions. and certainly much easier to scale in a controllable way because they are contributing both capital, but also, as I said before, intellectual property and infrastructure to make these deals much easier. And I think that the the fallacy that people have is that if you sell your agency and you and you want to have an exit, that um, you kind of have to just walk away. You know, you may, maybe you have an earnout or whatever, and you walk away. But you know, I'm a young dude for the most part. I, I got a lot of a lot of fight left in me, and still want to be involved. It's a really attractive opportunity 
to sure. become part of, of Keystone Agency Partners and right. then go out and, and grow. I could I could literally be back at the same equity level that I am in, in right now in a very short period of time, relatively speaking, through yes. acquisition. Absolutely. That's that you hit the nail on the head there, Dave. That's that's exactly right. Um, and, and I'm not I'm not here to say push people, hey, go, you know, sell your business to KP, be, be, become a member. But if you're at that stage where it makes sense for you as, as an agency owner, I, I would look at that versus the co- competition that are out there just gobbling people up and you know you no longer have your identity. You don't even have your name anymore. Right. So I mean that's the that we're still yeah, in this agency. I kind of look at it like this, man. I mean if I plan on being in the game for 10 more years and, and just say, I'm going to, I'm going to do this for 10 years and then I'm going to be done, blah, 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 blah. And I knew that I could sell my agency today and pull cash out of it at the current multiples that are, mm-hmm. that are getting spent, but still retain equity in the agency, still come to work every day, do what I like, have control to run it and all, and, and all of that. And know that my agency will be back to the same size it was or bigger. Yeah. Certainly within the 10 years. Oh yeah. Why would I not? It's like free money, man. Yeah. Yeah. And the larger you get, you know, the larger the the multiples are too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Well, listen, what did we miss, man? I don't want to, I don't want to continue to beat on things. I feel like we've covered such a wide variety of stuff. What is there anything you wanted to share with, with the uh, audience that we haven't talked about? No, I mean, I think we did hit the nail on the head with a bunch of stuff. I, I would just say, I think there needs to be more insurance agencies out there that don't have the used car salesman, you know, feeling about them. I mean, there's just mm-hmm. way too and, and again, this gets back to the competition, right? So the competition, the ones that are gobbling up people, it's all about the money. Your salespeople, these guys got to meet quotas. They got to, you know, so some of these young producers are just transacting business and it's not, it's not at the benefit of the, of the insurer. So it's, it's, they, they got to move on to the next one because it's all about hitting a goal and just making money. We all want to make money. I get that but we have to do a professional job, you know? And so uh, we need more of that out there, but the less that there is, that gives us more of an edge. Exactly. I agree. All right, man. Well, I think we wrap it up here. I think we've, I think we've given some people a lot of stuff to, uh, to think about and to unpack. (laughs) I hate unpack. (laughs) But I, I do. I think I think it's been really good conversation. So I, I re- appreciate you joining us today, Rob. I uh, always enjoy talking to other agents and hearing about what's going on. Um, I always like hearing other people's perspectives. And certainly you have a unique one having started in claims and moved into the role that you're in now. So thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, guys. You guys yes, have a sir. great day. You too. Later. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com.